welcome to the Justin Peters program, where we're searching the scriptures to see if these things are so, studying to show ourselves approved, rightfully dividing the word of truth so that we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here's your host, Justin Peters. Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. I hope that you are doing well, and I want to thank you for tuning in. I just returned night before last from my trip to Brazil and had a good trip to Brazil. It was an interesting trip to Brazil, and uh, I actually want to talk to you about it, but I'm not going to do that today. I want to uh, I want to do a, a radio program on my trip to Brazil because some, some things happened that have never happened to me before, and I think it brings up some interesting issues and some things that maybe we can explore a little bit together, but I will hold that off until next week or possibly the week after. I'm not sure if I want to go ahead and plow through and finish our series on uh, rest for the weary, or if maybe next week take a little hiatus and uh, talk to you about my trip to Brazil. And then I have two more programs, uh, this program and one other one, to finish up our study on Matthew 11, 25 through 30. And so I'm not sure if I want to uh, do this uh, program on, on uh, that text today and, and then the next week finish it up and then do Brazil, or maybe stick Brazil in between the the two uh, bookends of of this uh, text. So anyway, if you have a preference, shoot me an email and uh, and I'll I'll talk about that. All right. Well, dear ones, let us begin. Let us look at Matthew 11, 25 through 30, continue our study. Uh, Just for a little recap from last week's program, we discussed what Jesus said, uh, what he meant when he said the meaning of the text, when he said that all things have been handed over to me, given to me. And he said, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the, the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And we discussed how Jesus here is talking about God's sovereignty in salvation and uh, how we as believers, we are, in essence, we are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And uh, Jesus here is very, very much emphasizing the sovereignty of God in salvation, that uh, only those people whom he wills to come to him will come to him. And we, we talked about that. And it's a, it's a doctrine that a lot of people do not like and a lot of people reject. But uh, not all do, happily, not all do. And I want to read a an email to you that I received just a couple of days ago. And I, I, it was very, very encouraging to me. This is from a lady named Teresa. And Teresa emailed me and uh, she said this. She said, Uh, Last night, I listened to part five, Rest for the Weary. I have rejoiced ever since. When you said the part about, in paraphrasing here, Jesus went to the cross primarily because it pleased God. It was like music to my ears. I grew up and all of my life thus far hearing Jesus died for sinners because of his great love for us, which is true. But not until last night had I ever heard that foundational truth. It is funny, since last night I feel such joy. It is almost like a restraint has been loosed. I guess there is nothing like the truth to bring 
refreshing. Thanks for the awesome preaching in Christ, uh, Teresa. So, uh, Teresa, if you are listening, uh, thank you. Thank you for that encouragement. And um, I share that with you, dear ones, because this is, uh, you know, and the sovereignty of God and salvation is a, it can be a difficult truth because it, it uh, to our fallen flesh, it seems like uh, it may be unfair. And it seems like, um, uh, you know, that, that some read, some uh, the lost will, will go to hell through no fault of their own, like they never had a chance. However, uh, we also read in Romans one eighteen, as we've discussed in this series, that um, people... People go to hell because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They knowingly suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and that is something that all of us have done, and all of us are deserving of hell. And uh, so we have to we have to keep in mind that what seems fair, uh, fair and unfair to us, it, it's 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 not necessarily the same with God. We have we live in a fallen world. We have fallen minds, fallen intellect, fallen reason. And God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And uh, as we talked about last week, God's grace is just that. It is God's grace. It belongs to him, and he can do with it as he pleases. Uh, but we can rest in what we know about God to be true. He is all-powerful. He is uh, all-knowing. He is omniscient. He's all-loving. He's omnibenevolent. And God can never act in any way that is contrary to his nature. And his nature is that of love, not a sappy, emotional, touchy-feely love, but a purifying love, a holy love. And God can never act in any way that is contrary to his nature. And so we rest in the sovereignty of God, just as Jesus himself rests in the sovereignty of of God, which of course is his own sovereignty as well. And so we talked about that. And, uh, so, uh, Teresa, thank you for that encouragement. And, you know, dear, this is a, this is a, a good example of how, um, you know, truth, biblical truth, even though it may be hard for us to understand sometime, but truth should always be a source of rejoicing for the Christian. Uh, anytime God's word is handled properly, that should be a cause for rejoicing, uh, not a cause for embarrassment or a cause uh, for anger, as so many people get angry at this doctrine of God's sovereignty. But it, it is clearly taught in Scripture. And so anytime a man gets up and preaches the word of God, as long as he is faithful to the text, as long as he rightly divides the word of truth, handles it properly, then we know that God is pleased. Man may not be pleased, but God is pleased because it is his truth. It is his word. And uh, so it should be a cause anytime a, a, a text of scripture is preached rightly, no matter how difficult that text may be, no matter how um, foreign it may seem to our ears at first, especially dealing with something like the sovereignty of God. But as long as it's handled rightly, that should be a cause of rejoicing, not a cause of embarrassment, not a cause for anger. It should be a cause for rejoicing. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Teresa. And I enjoy hearing from all of you. Uh, please do keep the emails coming. Okay, so 
Uh, without any further ado, last week, of course, we did talk about the sovereignty of God. Uh, this week, we will continue. We are in Matthew chapter 11, and this week we will be looking at verse 28. And Jesus says in verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the invitation of Christ. Come to me. That God is sovereign in salvation is taught throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. And yet, so is the responsibility of man to respond to God's call to him in the gospel. God's sovereignty in salvation is taught, and so is man's responsibility to respond to God's call to him in the gospel. The call of God to come to Christ is a call that goes out to all people. I want to say that again. The call of God to come to Christ is a call that goes out to all people. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, To as many as received him. John chapter 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever, whosoever, believes in him, should not perish. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. So anyone who hears his word and believes on him has eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, The one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. John chapter 6, verse 51, If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. John chapter 7 verse 31. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The call, the invitation goes out to anyone and everyone. God's kingdom will be populated with people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. Christ's invitation to come to him is wide and it is open. But I thought we just discussed last week that God chooses and elects. That's right. He does. The sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man are both taught in Scripture. They are both true. Some would question, how could this be? How could they both be true? They seem to be mutually contradictory. But this is what we call in Scripture an antinomy. An antinomy. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. An antinomy. An antinomy is two truths that appear to be contradictory, but in reality are not. And there are a number of antinomies in Scripture. For example, the Trinity Is God one God, or is he a trinity? Both. Did Paul write the book of Romans, or did God write the book of Romans? Both. Is Jesus fully God, or is he fully man? Both. The antinomy of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility runs throughout all of Scripture from start to finish. And uh, sometimes we see this antinomy even in the same verse. Even in the same verse. Consider this statement from the Apostle Peter's uh, sermon in Jerusalem as recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is a sermon that Peter was preaching. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. The Apostle Peter says this. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, now, now here it is, listen, verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So, who was it that put Jesus to death? Was it godless men? Or was it by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God? Both. Both. These men were responsible for what they did. And yet, this is something that God had predetermined and planned from before the foundation of the world. So both of these are true. And you say, Justin, I can't understand that. I can't understand that either. But I believe it because Scripture teaches it. And dear friends, I, I tell people all the time, there is nothing in the Bible that I do not believe. I believe every word of it, every letter of it, every jot and tittle of it. But there are things in the Bible that I do not fully understand. And I readily admit that. And uh, anybody who tells you that they do have it all figured out... Um, not reading the Bible, the same Bible I'm reading, and uh, and I would go even further and say that they're extraordinarily, exceedingly arrogant, and uh, that they do not truly understand the gospel, and they do not have really any understanding of of the majesty of God, because um, there's there's no way that we can fully grasp the things of God this side of heaven in a fallen world living in fallen bodies with fallen minds and fallen intellects and fallen reason. So we, we can't, as high as the heavens are above the earth. So are my thoughts above your thoughts, my ways above your ways, says the Lord. So it was both of these. It was, it was by God's predetermined plan that Jesus went to the cross, and yet he was also crucified by the hands of godless men who will be held accountable for what they did. When Charles Spurgeon was asked how to reconcile these two seemingly contradictory truths, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, Charles Spurgeon replied very simply, he says, you do not have to reconcile friends. These are twin truths in Scripture, and they run, run along parallel lines all throughout the Bible. They're both true. They are both true. God is sovereign in salvation. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And yet, man is also responsible to that call. He is responsible to the call that goes out. Jesus says, come to me. So this is the invitation of Christ. And it's an invitation that goes out to everyone. Come to me, all who are. Now let's look at this phrase. Jesus says, all who are. All who are. This indicates... A condition that already exists. Excuse me. This indicates a condition that already exists. Those whom Jesus invites are already weary. They are already heavy laden. Come to me represents faith in Christ. Those who come to Christ do so in faith. So even though the weary and heavy laden 
is mentioned after faith in the text. Chronologically, it precedes faith. So being weary and heavy laden, uh, this is a prerequisite to come to Christ. In other words, if you are not weary, if you are not heavy laden, then you are not prepared to come to Christ. It is only those who are already weary, who are already heavy laden, who can come to Christ. So this uh, prerequisite, this condition of being weary and heavy laden is a very, very important one, is it not? If it is required uh, for us to be weary and to be heavy laden before we come to Christ, then we need to know what does this mean? What condition is this of being weary and heavy laden? So let's look at that now. Weary and heavy laden. The call of Christ goes to all, goes out to all. But it is effectual, it is effectual to those who are weary and heavy laden. Those who are weary of relying on their own wisdom, their own intellect, their own futile good works. As we talked about a couple of verses ago when Jesus says, uh, said uh, that that it it uh, he burst forth into praise because he, God had hidden the things of the gospel from the wise and the intelligent. Those who perceive themselves to be wise perceive themselves to be intelligent. Those who rest in their own intellect or rest in their own um, meritorious good works or what they believe is meritorious good works, but uh, truly our works are as filthy rags. So those who are weary are those who are weary of relying on their own wisdom. So this is a contrast to the sarcastic reference that he made a couple of verses before. I, I praise you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. So when he's talking about the, the weary and the heavy laden are opposite. They're, they're totally different, a totally different state than those who are uh, perceive themselves to be wise and intelligent. So the weary are those who are weary of relying on themselves. They have come to the end of themselves, and they are at the point of exhaustion from trying to please God from their own merits. The heavy laden are those who not only are exhausted from their own efforts, but are also heavily laden with the guilt of sin. Those who are sorrowful over their sin. And this, dear ones, is a very, very important point. What I'm about to say may be the most important thing that I say in this is this entire series. There are two different kinds of sorrow over sin. And the Bible speaks of both of them. Okay, the Bible speaks of both. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. And let's let's look at this. I'll give you just a second to get there. Second Corinthians seven nine through ten. If you're taking notes, please do uh, write this reference down, because uh, this is this is a passage that very very few people ever hear preached. Um, very few. I have talked to people uh, I know have known for a long long time, have been in church for a long long time, and uh, in fact, I've talked to several people. And I've, I've asked them if they've ever heard this passage preached, if they've understood the difference between these two different kinds of sorrow. And um, I've had a number of people tell me no, that they that they did not. But this is so very important. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Okay, 
the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, writes this. He says, I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, I don't want to take the time to fully exposit these two verses, but but I want us to look. There's two different kinds of sorrow here. A worldly sorrow, a sorrow uh, of the world that produces death, and then there is a godly sorrow, godly sorrow that produces genuine repentance unto salvation. Worldly sorrow is that sorrow which results merely from a guilty conscience. And dear friends, everyone on the planet has that. Everyone has that. All of us deep down know that we are sinners. We know this. We know instinctively that it is wrong to lie and steal. That is why we instinctively try to cover our tracks when we do so. You you can go to any any people group on in any country and people know ex- instinctively that it is wrong to lie. That's why they cover their tracks. They know that it's wrong to steal. That's why they do it in the dark. And they try to get away with it. They they know it's wrong to murder. That's why they they uh, they do it. They they again they try to cover their tracks. People know that, and they know instinctively that these things are wrong. So a worldly sorrow is that sorrow which is centered around self, centered around ourselves. In other words, think of it this way: a worldly sorrow is a kind of sorrow that that makes me wonder, that makes us wonder things like this. What would happen to me if my secret sin were to be found out? What would be the consequences to me? What would happen to me? What what would people think of me? How would this affect me? It is self-centered and it is concerned with self-preservation. This is a worldly sorrow and this worldly sorrow leads to death. It leads to death. But... There is also a godly sorrow, and a godly sorrow over sin is that which is concerned not with ourselves, but with God. A godly sorrow is when we recognize that our sin is first and foremost against God, against His person. A godly sorrow is that sorrow which grieves us because we know that our sin grieves God. Say that again. A godly sorrow is a sorrow which grieves us because we know and we understand that our sin grieves God. God has been so good, so gracious, so kind, so patient, so merciful, and yet we knowingly and deliberately sin against Him. When we grieve because our sin grieves God, that, dear ones, is a godly sorrow. That is a godly sorrow. Jesus said this. He said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I can remember years ago when I would read this, I I think he was just talking about people who are sad. You know, people who maybe lost a loved one or something like that. But, dear friends, this mourning is not the mourning over the loss of a friend or a family member. 
This is a mourning over one's sin. A mourning over one's sin. Have you mourned over your sin? Do you have that godly sorrow? Do you grieve over your sin? Because you understand that your sin grieves God. We often think of coming to Christ to escape the wrath of God in hell. And this is good. This is right. The lost should fear God. But there should be more to our coming to Christ than merely wanting to escape hell. Just as much as we want to be saved from hell, we should want to be saved from our sins. Bible commentator Arthur Pink writes, and he says this, quote, The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. He announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. That is why so many are fatally deceived, for there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire, who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. End quote. Now that is worth pondering. That is worth pondering. Arthur Pink says that uh, the gospel has been woefully misrepresented by most present-day evangelists. And and indeed, you know, he says that um, most evangelists, of course, he was writing this back in 1952. So let's keep that in mind. This was back in uh, 1952, so this is, what, 60-some-odd years ago. So this this is a long time ago. Uh, And back then, yes... um, most evangelists were still preaching God's holiness and His righteousness and His wrath, and those are good things. We should preach those the good thing, go those things, because Jesus Himself preached them. Uh, but you know, fast forward to the year 2015, and of course, the most most of what is being preached now from evangelists is not really escaping the wrath of God, although there is some of that, and I'm, I'm thankful that there is some of that, and there needs to be some of that, but most of the gospel, most of the time the gospel is presented in such a way that, you know, uh, God will fill that God-shaped hole in your heart. Everybody has a God-shaped hole in your heart. He'll give you your best life now, or He will give you your purpose-driven life. Uh, so, you know, it's more like life enhancement now. But but what is absent in both of these approaches well, the latter approach, you know, life enhancement, you reject that out of hand. That that has no place in evangelism at all because that's foreign to the Word of God. Now, warning people about hell, that does have a place and we should do that. But what is missing in that, though, is we also need to to tell people that that just as much as they want to escape hell, they should also want to escape their sin. They should want to escape their sin. They should, they should yearn to be delivered from their sin. You know, as Paul said, "Oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of flesh?" Christ will. Christ will deliver us from that. So, let me ask you this: just to examine yourself, this is one of the key differences between a lost person and a Christian. A lost person can sin and enjoy it. A lost person can sin and not grieve over it. But if you're a Christian, when you sin, and a Christian does sin, by the way, 
I'm not teaching sinless perfection here at all. Anyone who would teach sinless perfection does not understand the gospel. Uh, yes, a Christian can and does stumble into sin, but a Christian does not swim in his sin. A Christian does not enjoy his sin. A Christian does not relish his sin. If you're truly saved, you should want to turn from sin, not because of some consequences that may befall you if your sin was discovered, but you should want to turn from sin because your sin you understand that your sin grieves God. And someone who is who is lost and yet uh, is is in the process of coming to Christ, if that person has is grieving over a sin, if he has been brought to the point where he is weary, where he is heavy laden, where he is sorrowful over his sin, and genuinely, genuinely wants to abandon his sin, that that is somebody whom God is in the process of saving, or is just about to save, or just has saved. That is a godly saw that leads to genuine repentance. So, um, examine yourself, dear ones. Uh, a lot of people will email me or talk to me about having doubts about their salvation. And uh, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to. I, Those of you who have heard me give my testimonies on the website, um, I... I used to uh, I used to doubt my salvation, um, and, and for good reason, I used to doubt it. What is? Look at your life. What is your? How do you view sin? Do you just merely understand that you're a sinner? Well, that's great, but everybody understands that. Uh, everybody, if, if pressed, would admit that they do things that are not right. So everybody understands that they that they commit these things. They have intellectual assent to that. But then as, look at the sorrow that you have over it. Is it a worldly sorrow? Is it a sorrow that is just concerned about what would happen to you if your sin were found out? Or is it a godly sorrow? Do you grieve over your sin because your sin grieves God and you understand that and you desire to turn away from sin? You don't you don't relish your sin. You don't want to continue a, a lifestyle of sin and you want to turn from that because you want to please God. That's that's a godly sorrow. That's and that's good. And so maybe you're listening and and maybe you're doubting your salvation. Maybe you wonder Am I really saved? Uh, maybe you don't have the assurance. Well, one of the things to look for is, do you enjoy your sin? Do you look for opportunities to sin? Uh, do you, do you, or do you have a godly sorrow over your sin? Do you, does it grieve you when you sin? Yes, you sin. Yes, you sin. We all do. We stumble into it. But we don't commit it um, with with forethought, we don't we don't plan it, you know. We don't look for ways to engage in sin because that's what we really enjoy. Our sin should grieve us. Do you grieve over your sin because you know that your sin grieves God and you desire to turn away from it? And friends, if if you're there, if if you have that godly sorrow over your sin, and I'm not saying that you have to 
cry and slobber and all that. I'm not, you know, some people do, uh, you know, and that's fine. I'm not saying you have to, you literally have to, you know, literally weep and get out the tissues and curl up into a fetal position on the floor. I'm not saying you have to do that. But do you grieve over your sin? Do you have that godly sorrow? Do you want to turn from sin because you you know that that would please God? And, and you know that turning from sin, uh, uh, abandoning sin, desiring to live a holy life, that will, will make you a, a good and faithful witness for Christ, a faithful servant of His. You know that will enable your, it will, will facilitate your growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Christ. So that's one thing that I would I would tell you to look for. Emotions don't. You know, don't don't look for emotions, don't base your salvation on your emotions because our emotions are up and down. Especially if you're a woman. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Well for all of us, emotions are up and down. Especially for the fairer gender, but for all of us they are. So emotions in and of themselves don't look to that. Um but you know, you know deep down how you view sin. And if you have a godly sorrow over it, if you desire to live a holy life because you know that that pleases God, that is a good indication that you do indeed know Christ, that you are indeed a new creature. You have been made a new creature in Christ. You've been born again. All things passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Okay, so does that make sense? I hope so. Let's continue just a little bit here. Note note what the Apostle Paul says is the fruit of godly sorrow. The Bible says that godly sorrow produces repentance, genuine repentance. Any supposed profession of faith or conversion without repentance is a farce. It is a false conversion. John the Baptist preached repentance. Uh, Isaiah preached repentance. Jeremiah preached repentance. The apostles Paul and Peter preached repentance. Jesus was a preacher of repentance. He said in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Where there has been no repentance, there has been no salvation. Say that again. Where there has been no repentance, there has been no salvation. The subject of repentance is one in which there is a great deal of confusion in the church today. And um, and this is where I want us to pick up next week looking at repentance. Um, because I'm looking at our time and we're up. I, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground in, in this program. Some very important things. So uh, we will pick up next week with repentance. We've talked about the worldly sorrow. We've talked about the godly sorrow. And now uh, we will look at what that godly sorrow produces. It does indeed produce genuine repentance. So we will save that for next week. Dear ones, thank you for joining me. And I want to remind you again, we do, uh, we'll be beginning a, a series, a radio series here on spiritual warfare. Uh, my pastor and friend Jim Osmond has written a book on spiritual warfare entitled Truth or Territory. And in it, he deals with things like Binding Satan, rebuking Satan, uh, hedge of protection, uh, exorcisms, uh, territorial spirits, generational curses—all of these things, all of this, all of this um, um, 
hoopla about spiritual warfare. And uh, oftentimes we think of spiritual warfare, we think of the Frank Peretti novels, right? We think of swashbuckling angels and demons and, you know, flying around and all that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, as the title of the book implies, uh, spiritual warfare is not a battle for territory. It is a battle for truth. So um, get the get the book. It is out now on Kindle. Uh, the website is truthorterritory.com. Truthorterritory.com. Uh, I highly recommend it. Very, very good book. Very timely book. And I look forward to starting that radio series with you here in just a couple of weeks. So thank you for joining me, dear ones. Until our time together uh, next time, uh, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to the Justin Peters Program. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or would like to invite him to come and speak at your church or conference, contact him through his website, justinpeters.org. That's justinpeters.org.